You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 334 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As you guys will recall, we've been talking about the collapse of the federal line north and west of the town of Gettysburg on the afternoon of July 1st, 1863. So far, we've talked about the success of the Confederate attack north of town as the rebels descended like an avalanche on the 11th Corps position there. Next, moving counterclockwise around the Federal line, we looked at the collapse of the northern portion of the 1st Corps' line, north of the Chambersburg Pike. And now this week, we'll talk about the fierce fighting south of the Pike on that portion of the 1st Corps' line. As we said previously on the podcast, Confederate Division Commander Harry Heath, from atop Hers Ridge, had watched as Rhodes' attacks from Oak Hill had unfolded. Heath, after receiving a bloody nose that morning with the repulse of Archer's and Davis's brigades, was now eager to re-enter the fight, especially since he'd noticed that Federal units to his front were shifting positions in order to counter Rhodes' attacks. Heath was tired of standing idly by while there was fighting going on over across the way, and he appealed twice to Robert E. Lee for permission to advance. Lee answered Heath's first appeal with an emphatic no, but then the Confederate commander decided to seize the moment and attempt to take control of the escalating situation. And sometime around 2.30 that afternoon, Lee sent orders for Heath to advance. To lead this renewed effort, Harry Heath called on his two brigades that had been kept out of the morning fight, those under John Brockenbrough and Johnston Pettigrew. Forming into lines of battle south of the Chambersburg Pike and less than half a mile west of McPherson's Ridge, Brockenbrough's 800 Virginians formed up on the left of Heath's line, while the 2,500 men in Pettigrew's All-North Carolina Brigade, the largest brigade in the Army of Northern Virginia, fell in on Brockenbrough's right. What remained of Archer's brigade would advance to the right of Pettigrew in support. Heath's instructions were simple. Brockenbrough and Pettigrew were to push straight ahead, 
directly toward the Iron Brigade position in the Herbst Woodlot and toward Colonel Chapman Biddle's New York and Pennsylvania soldiers farther back on McPherson's Ridge. And by the by, but Heath's renewed push here, south of the Chambersburg Pike, roughly coincided with Rhodes' second effort from Oak Hill on the northern portion of the First Corps line. On the Federal side, holding the line south of the Chambersburg Pike, were three brigades. Nearest the pike was Colonel Roy Stone's brigade, now commanded by Colonel Edmund Dana after Stone's wounding. As y'all recall from an earlier discussion, the brigade was composed of three Pennsylvania regiments, the 143rd, the 149th, and the 150th. Stone's brigade had deployed around the buildings of the McPherson farm just south of the Chambersburg Pike. It had two of its three regiments facing north to counter the pressure from Rhodes' division. The constant skirmish firing and steady shelling made life tenuous in the exposed position near the McPherson farm. While the 143rd Pennsylvania waited to go into action, a bullet from Confederate skirmishers struck Private Jacob Yale above the eye, and he became the first fatality of the war from Company I of that regiment. Standing next in line to the fallen Yale, Simon Hubler heard his company's first sergeant order the men to close up the gap in the line. Hubler noted, This the men did with serious faces. Just south of the Pennsylvanians was the Iron Brigade, still holding the Herbst Woodlot. During the noon lull in the action, the Black Cat soldiers received an unusual reinforcement. A bit earlier, Colonel Langhorn Wister of the 150th Pennsylvania had been startled to see a civilian dressed in an ancient swallowtail coat and a tall hat of similar vintage approach him on the firing line and have the old fellow declare that he wanted to join the fight. Wister could tell the man was serious, but the colonel decided that the position here was too exposed, so he suggested the man head over to the left where the Iron Brigade held the Herbst Woodlot and where the man could at least be under some cover. This was 69-year-old John Burns, a shoemaker, veteran of the War of 1812, and a cantankerous old curmudgeon who had served as Gettysburg's town constable and was known to his fellow citizens as something of a character. Now, here on July 1st, he had shouldered his ancient flintlock musket and, with a pocket full of bullets, headed out to join in the defense of the town. Burns had apparently served with the Union Army as a teamster, that is, a wagon driver, in 1861, so it wasn't at all out of character for the feisty old fellow to take this opportunity to impress both his fellow townspeople and the fellow soldiers with his martial skill. After Colonel Wister sent him off to become the Iron Brigade's problem, Burns tracked down the Lieutenant Colonel of the 7th Wisconsin, John Callis, who advised Burns to go home or he'd get hurt. Rearing up and giving full vent to his hurt pride, Burns declared, No, sir. If you won't let me fight in your regiment, I will fight alone. There are 300 cowards back in that town who ought to come out of their cellars and fight, and I will show you that there is one man in Gettysburg who is not afraid. 
Well, if that was what this peculiar old fellow wanted, then Callus had better things to do than argue with him. So a sergeant gave him a rifle captured earlier from one of Archer's rebels to replace his ancient flintlock, and John Burns made his way up to the skirmish line, where from behind a tree he took pot shots at the Confederates across the way. One Union soldier later admitted the old man was, quote, as cool as any veteran among us. Burns would later say, I pitched in with them Wisconsin fellers. And he blazed away at the rebels before suffering three wounds and being left behind in the Union retreat. He would spend the night lying out on the battlefield before finding help the next morning and being taken back to his home on Chambersburg Street. Luckily for him, the Confederates imagined they had rescued an unarmed old man who had wandered into the line of fire, instead of a civilian who had taken up arms, whom they would have been perfectly justified in shooting out of hand. Well, as it was, John Burns would be mentioned in Doubleday's report of the battle, would get to meet Abraham Lincoln in November when the president came to town to deliver a few remarks And if you visit Gettysburg today, you can find a statue of the feisty old man along Stone Avenue, there on McPherson's Ridge, near where he pitched in with them Wisconsin fellers. To the left of the Iron Brigade, Colonel Chapman Biddle's brigade extended the Federal line southward to the Fairfield Road, but Biddle's position was a poor one. It offered little cover, and his Pennsylvanians and New Yorkers were too few in number to defend it effectively. Beyond them, only the 8th Illinois Cavalry, one of Buford's regiments, screened the Union southern flank. Worryingly, the 1st Corps line here, south of the Chambersburg Pike, had no reserve behind it now, since Doubleday had been compelled to dispatch his last uncommitted brigade northward to reinforce Baxter's position up on the other end of the Corps line. At any rate, at around 2.30 p.m., Heath's Confederates advanced and ran head-on into the Yankee line here south of the Pike. What followed was one of the most ferocious hours of fighting in American history, Stone's Pennsylvanians clung tenaciously to the McPherson farm, despite their difficult position, which exposed them to pressure from Rhodes rebels to the north and from Brockenbrough's Virginians to the west. Colonel Dana, now commanding the brigade, skillfully maneuvered the three regiments of Pennsylvanians to meet Brockenbrough's attack, bringing the Virginians' advance to a temporary standstill. While the Pennsylvanians clung to the McPherson farm like grim death, the Black Hat boys of the Iron Brigade held their ground in the Herbst woodlot, as to the right of Brockenbrough's stalled line, Pettigrew's North Carolinians continued to move forward across Willoughby Run and directly into the teeth of the Federal fire. It was here on the afternoon of July 1st that one of the most famous regimental duels of the entire war would play out between the Federals of the 24th Wisconsin and the Confederates of the 26th North Carolina. In front of the 26th North Carolina, which was advancing in the center of Pettigrew's brigade, stood the 24th Michigan, 
the junior regiment of the Iron Brigade, having joined up with it the previous fall. But in the Herbst Woodlot that July afternoon, these Michigan men proved themselves equally as tough and as determined as their black-hatted comrades from Indiana and Wisconsin. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Sometimes during the Civil War, fate placed two fighting units of equal tenacity in direct opposition to one another, so that in such cases, the combatants often exhibited equal portions of courage and fighting skill, with the result being a ferocious and bloody confrontation. The short but horrific struggle of the 26th North Carolina and 24th Michigan on the afternoon of July 1st at Gettysburg was one of those confrontations. The troops in these two regiments, those who walked off the field and those who didn't, earned for themselves a measure of glory that day. The rival regiments shared many qualities. Their training and discipline meant both ranked as among the best drilled regiments in their respective armies. Brave, competent officers looked out for both these Tar Heels and Wolverines, something that, unfortunately, wasn't true among all Civil War formations. And then the 24th and 26th were both formed from companies whose members came from the same close-knit communities of their states. In fact, both regiments were distinguished by the number of kinfolk in their ranks. For example, 16 members of the same family answered roll call in one company of the 26th North Carolina, while 135 brothers shouldered muskets in the 24th Michigan. Such a tight grouping of relatives helped reinforce a unit's fighting prowess, since the men would be more likely to stand firm on the firing line when they knew family members would be counting on them, and that any hint of cowardice would follow them back to their hometown. 
As Rich mentioned a couple of minutes ago, the 24th Michigan was the junior member of the Iron Brigade, having joined the formation in October 1862. In fact, they had only received their coveted black hats in late May 1863, and so at Gettysburg would be fighting their first battle wearing them, which was no small factor in pushing them to fight their hardest. Entering battle on July 1st, the 24th Michigan numbered 496 men and was commanded by Colonel Henry Morrow. At the time of the Battle of Gettysburg, the 26th North Carolina was part of Johnston Pettigrew's Brigade, which also included the 11th, 47th, and 52nd North Carolina regiments. The All Tar Heel Formation was the biggest brigade in the Army of Northern Virginia, and at over 800 men, the 26th North Carolina was one of the largest regiments on the field at Gettysburg, Union, or Confederate. Henry Bergwin Jr. had taken command of the 26th when its first colonel, Zebulon Vance, was elected governor of North Carolina. Bergwin, a mere 21 years old and nicknamed the Boy Colonel, had been a cadet at the Virginia Military Institute after graduating from the University of North Carolina, where his brigade commander, Johnston Pettigrew, was a professor. While at VMI, Bergwin's abilities were noticed by one of the school's instructors, Thomas Jonathan Jackson, who had yet to earn his famous nickname, Stonewall. Jackson provided Bergwin with a glowing recommendation for a commission in the Confederate Army, and his former VMI professor made an unforgettable impression on the boy colonel, who copied Stonewall's emphasis on discipline and drill. Pettigrew's brigade started its advance from a position about 400 yards west of Willoughby's Run, with nothing but open fields in front of it down to the stream. The Iron Brigade was just east of the run, with the 24th Michigan spread along a 200-yard front, positioned between the 19th Indiana and 7th Wisconsin. The regiment was forced into an awkward angle, bending its right back to meet the 7th Wisconsin, and with its left swung back to connect with the 19th Indiana. During the noon lull, Morrow voiced his concern that the 24th was in an untenable spot, and asked several times to be repositioned, but each time his request was refused. On the other side of the field, Bergwin was impatient to begin the fight, and was relieved to finally receive the order to advance. The well-drilled Tar Heels stepped off and approached Willoughby Run in splendid order, as if on parade. One watching Union soldier said that the Confederates advanced in, quote, as pretty and perfect a line as a regiment ever made, every man endeavoring to keep dressed on the colors. Colonel Morrow ordered his wolverines to open fire as soon as the 26th stood up to advance. The Tar Heels' advance was little affected by that first volley, which for the most part went over their heads. But the rebels did take a beating from the Federal artillery firing from back on Seminary Ridge. The 26th lost two color bearers even before negotiating Willoughby Run, and they continued to take heavy losses as they made their way across the stream. 
As the rebels crossed the stream, the tangled underbrush that lined the bank slowed their advance and wreaked havoc on their alignment, which was no longer parade ground perfect. But despite this, they pushed onward toward the federal line. Morrow was forced to pull the 24th Michigan back from the stream into the trees of the Herbst Woodlot. The Wolverines brought off the retrograde movement in an orderly fashion, and they continued to pour lead into their assailants. After crossing the run, the Tar Heels reformed their line and then moved up closer to the enemy in the trees ahead. The opposing lines were now in such close proximity that they could hear each other's officers giving orders. Forty paces separated the combatants, then just twenty paces. It was at this point of the fight that the losses in the two regiments were heaviest. Near the middle of the woodlot, the North Carolinians and Michiganders stood almost toe-to-toe, loading and firing as fast as humanly possible, pouring sheets of musketry into each other. The 52nd North Carolina had advanced in echelon behind the 26th and had done so largely unobserved by the Federals. The 52nd, along with the 11th and 47th North Carolina, overwhelmed the 19th Indiana, and the surging Confederate troops moved around the Iron Brigade's left flank, forcing back the 19th Indiana. With the collapse of such vital support on their flank, the men of the 24th Michigan found themselves exposed to a withering crossfire from the front and left. Captain William Speed of Company D fell dead with a shot through the heart as he tried to refuse or bend back the left end of the regiment's line to meet the onrushing Confederates. The carnage continued without pause. Two more men went down while carrying the 26th North Carolina's colors forward. By this time, Harry Heath had been knocked out of the fight with a head wound, but Johnston Pettigrew, watching the action, sent a messenger to tell Bergwin, quote, Your regiment has covered itself with glory. Lieutenant Colonel John Lane of the 26th reported, quote, The engagement was becoming desperate. It seemed as if the bullets were as thick as hailstones in a storm. End quote. The Tar Heels continued to advance as the Wolverines hard-pressed and taking significant casualties, retreated one step at a time halfway up the slope, firing all the way. There the Federals paused briefly, but then continued their slow withdrawal. There was no panic in their ranks, but by this time, shortly after 3 p.m., only about a quarter of the men of the 24th were still on their feet and fighting. Too overwhelmed to hold, and too proud to break, the Michiganders fought on. The two regiments were locked in a ferocious, bitter combat, and the color bearers on each side remained tempting targets in the midst of the bloody contest. The 26th North Carolina's flag fell several times in quick secession, but each time a new volunteer would grab the standard as the regiment continued to press forward. When yet another of these brave color bearers fell, Henry Bergwin, the boy colonel, made his way over to the spot and picked up the flag. Bergwin shouted for his men to dress on the colors as he raised the flag. 
Private Frank Honeycutt approached Bergwin and requested the colonel give him the colors. As Bergwin turned to hand the flag to Honeycutt, a bullet drilled into him, punching through the two journals he carried, smashing through his ribcage, and tearing through both his lungs. Mortally wounded, the boy colonel lived for two more hours. Private Honeycutt was shot in the head as he retrieved the fallen colors, now stained by Bergwin's blood. A bit farther up the ridge, Colonel Morrow took the colors of the 24th Michigan to rally his troops to a new line of battle, by some counts their fifth of the fight. Private William Kelly came up to Morrow, saying, The Colonel of the 24th Michigan shall never carry the colors while I am alive. But no sooner had Kelly taken the flagstaff in hand than he was shot and dropped dead. Morrow got hold of the regiment's colors once again, but by then he was bleeding profusely from a head wound and had to relinquish command. Every foot of ground was now being contested. The 24th Michigan was nearly surrounded as the men continued to back up, inching up the ridge and out of the trees toward the seminary beyond, where the battered 1st Corps troops here would make their final stand. Meanwhile, back amongst the trees in the Herbst woodlot, torn and bleeding bodies littered the ground. During this epic, terrible battlefield duel, the 24th Michigan lost nine color bearers killed or wounded, and only 27 of its men would answer roll call on Culp's Hill later that evening. The 26th North Carolina lost 14 color bearers that afternoon, and only 99 of its men were accounted for that evening. Both regiments suffered over 70% casualties that day. Captain Romulus Tuttle's Company F of the 26th North Carolina suffered the most astounding loss as every man in the unit was killed or wounded. Company F went into action on the afternoon of July 1st with three officers and 88 enlisted men. 31 were killed or mortally wounded, and the remainder were wounded, including Tuttle. The Federals' retreat out of the Herbst Woodlot and off McPherson's Ridge to Seminary Ridge ended this phase of the fighting for the two regiments, and none too soon, or the hard-hitting Tar Heels and the stubborn Wolverines might well have fought to the last man. As the 26th and 11th North Carolina pried loose the Iron Brigade from the Herbst Woodlot, a bit to the south, Pettigrew's other two regiments, the 47th and the 52nd North Carolina, slammed head-on into Biddle's Brigade of Federals on McPherson's Ridge. The combat here was equally ferocious, and there, too, the right of the Confederate line extended well beyond Biddle's left, and, unable to hold, the New Yorkers and Pennsylvanians also began falling back. The First Corps line on McPherson's Ridge was collapsing. The retreat of both Biddle's Brigade and the Iron Brigade left only the Pennsylvanians of Stone's Brigade atop the ridge line, near the McPherson House and Barn. There, Brock and Bra's Virginians had renewed their attack, advancing from the west. 
So too had the tenacious Junius Daniel, whose North Carolinians from Rhodes Division advanced for the third time from the north side of the Chambersburg Pike. Under severe pressure, and now alone on the ridgeline, Colonel Dana ordered the men to retreat. Brockenbrough's Virginians swept forward to the McPherson farm buildings. In the barn, they rounded up 350 prisoners, mostly wounded Union soldiers, including Colonel Roy Stone. Stone's three Pennsylvania regiments, who had entered the battle with something to prove, had shown themselves to be true warriors. They entered the fight on this day with 1,350 men, and 850 were now casualties. Stone's survivors fell back to Seminary Ridge, where a new line of defense was being patched together. The battered remnants of the Iron Brigade were there, as were those of Biddle's Brigade, while the 1st Corps artillery chief, Charles Wainwright, lined the ridge with an impressive array of guns. The Federals here determined to make their final stand on Seminary Ridge, preparing for yet another Confederate advance, which wasn't long in coming. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, which is Covered with Glory, the 26th North Carolina Infantry at the Battle of Gettysburg by Rod Gregg. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As we wrap up this show, we want to thank the newest members who have signed up over on Patreon to support the podcast. So thanks to Scott, Ben, Neil, and Francis, Joe, John David, Sean, and Perry. And thanks to Stephen C., George A., and D.O. Franco for their donations. Those are always much appreciated. Thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich, and I do hope that you'll join us again next time as we look at the Confederate attack on Seminary Ridge and talk some more about the Federal retreat through Gettysburg to Cemetery Hill. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.